Thanks for listening to show 44 of the C-Suite podcast, which is sponsored by global communications training firm WPNT and is being recorded at PR Week's Crisis Communications Conference in London. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and I'm going to be chatting with three of the speakers from today's event about some of the issues that they've been discussing here within their presentations, some of which I have to say are extremely sensitive, uh, given we're not just talking about protecting corporate reputation, but in certain instances, we're referencing events that have um, actually involved the loss of human life. So I hope listeners feel we handle this topic appropriately. But of course, if anyone has any comments about anything discussed in today's show, you can always get in touch uh, through the contact form on our website at csuitepodcast.com. Now, the first of my guests is Katie Perkin, who is Head of Corporate Communications at Sussex Police. Katie's been speaking today about particular events that uh, prove to be very challenging from a comms perspective, given how fast moving the situations can become. And sadly, timing wise, we've witnessed some tragic uh, instances um, just like that with the recent terror attacks in Manchester and London. And so I wanted to use this opportunity to speak to Katie about police communications in general in, in such situations. Katie, let's start with those specific cases. I know you can't necessarily comment on actual activity, but as someone working uh, for the police, what's been your view on how all the communications have been handled over recent weeks? Well, first of all, my thoughts go out to all those people that have been affected and indeed those people that have been dealing with these absolutely horrendous events. Uh, I work very closely with my policing colleagues and I think they've done a fantastic job of responding quickly and effectively to those situations. It probably won't surprise listeners to know that police communicators are very well practised and they make sure they've got very detailed plans for dealing with situations such as this. It's something that as a communications professional you don't ever want to be dealing with but I think you have to be prepared to deal with those difficult situations. I think in particular one of the things that the police service has really made sure that they're very quick to do is the instant response online to events such as this. We will see that people who are passing by, people who may be involved in those events, will very quickly post things online about what's happening. And I think it's really important and really critical that the police are there and putting communications out so the public know that the police are aware and can see that they're dealing with it. That was one of the things you actually talked about in, in your session and, and I was interested to know, you know, or, or listen at how you manage that issue because obviously people are posting images, sometimes videos, before family or friends of, of people that you know may have been affected um, will even know what's going on and then suddenly they may see something online. Indeed, it's a really, really difficult area for us to manage. What I would always say to the public is if you are near an incident and something happens and you take some footage, that actually might be something that's really helpful for the police. It's up to that individual what they do with it, but I would always ask people to think about the thoughts and feelings of those that may have been affected and how they would feel if that was the first time they became aware of a, of a loved one who may have been hurt or may have been killed. I think we're in a very different world than we maybe were 10 years ago with this um, citizen journalism, people just automatically, when something happens, the first thing a lot of people seem to do is to get their phone out and yeah. film it. Seems to have become a social norm. But it can be really it can be really helpful and it can also be really damaging. Particularly, for example, if there were an ongoing terrorist incident, it would actually be really unhelpful if people were posting stuff lifetime. What they might find themselves unwittingly doing is actually helping the terrorists out. 
because they would be giving them information maybe about what what the police were doing the media are very well aware of what they need to do in a situation like this in terms of um, live broadcast but I don't necessarily think the public are and I think it is something that we maybe do need to make them more aware of sure well one of the things I've I've noticed it'll be interesting to hear your view on this is that there does seem to be a, a pattern that emerges at times like this where for all the right reasons obviously the police are praised by the public key you know key public figures and the media for their bravery and, and speed of response but then what what often happens is after a few days as further details start to emerge about the perpetrators for example questions start to get raised about you know how come they knew who these people were why hadn't anything been done to prevent it happening and then it starts to go a little bit negative. I was, I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Well, on your first point about the praise, I mean, I am in awe of police officers. I'm a member of police staff and I don't get put in the same situation as some of my colleagues. I think what police officers do in day in, day out, putting themselves in danger, protecting people, is something that, that does deserve that public admiration. I think it's understandable that with situations like we've seen both in Manchester and London that people will ask questions but I think the key thing really is not to not to prejudge situations what the police service is very good at doing is looking back at where things have happened doing thorough reviews and taking learning to see if the things that could have been done differently. Obviously, it's far too early to say with any of these cases, but I think what the public need to be assured of is that the police service is completely committed to being open and transparent and looking at any learning that may come from such events and then applying that in the future. Okay, um, you've been speaking here at the conference on how the police force responds to major incidents and what I was keen to talk about was how you actually plan for them, particularly when they are of the like that can attract not just local or national interest but in some instances obviously international media interest. The police service is very um, well versed in exercising for instance like this. So what you will see is it's not just a communications response that we will practice, but the whole overall um, response. So recently um, there have been a number of different exercises up and down the country looking at how um, we might respond operationally, but also from a communications point of view. In addition, within my own department, I make sure that I have a very detailed plan in place for different different crises that may occur and also we exercise those plans whether that be through a tabletop exercise so people taking on different roles and talking about what they would do if they were in that role and what their roles and responsibilities would be I mentioned in my talk we have um, something called a pivot model a pivot model is something that we would put into place um, should there be a major incident Um, what it does is it outlines all the different roles and responsibilities that we need covered it might be that you don't have enough people for all the different roles so you would look at combining roles but what it's very clear on is all the different things that need to be picked up to make sure that you don't have any gaps there was a couple of things i picked i picked up on um in, in your talk one was about ensuring that you can get hold of everyone because sometimes you know you never know obviously when this crisis is going to hit it could be at a weekend when people aren't necessarily you know at work or, or ready um, to respond and the other thing was this media fixation in talking about number of deaths uh, you know at, at an incident do you want to sort of just go through both of those I think it's really important um, that all organisations and companies are prepared if a crisis happens. And I think one of the basic elements of that is, can you get hold of your people? 
on a Saturday evening when they might be down the pub or they might be with their families at a barbecue, how are you going to get hold of them? Have you got all their details? And at the push of a button, could you contact everyone in your department to let them know something's going on and you need a certain number of people in the office? It's no good if you've maybe got to switch your work computer on, go through a whole load of files, dig people's personnel files out. Have you got them there in your personal mobile phone? Touch of a button send a message out. I think that's really important and I think there's a number of different tools that people can look to 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 help with that. Um, On to your second point. It does seem that the media do have this fixation uh, when there's been an incident about the number of people that have died. I think it's a it's a human interest thing. They, They want to know how big an incident it is. So it is something that people need to be prepared for if they are dealing with an incident that has a number of fatalities, it is likely that that is something that will be continually asked and you do need to be prepared. And also you need to work very closely with your local coroner's office um, in matters such as that because it's really important that they're kept in the loop with what's going on. Okay, let's let's change the mood a little because, of course, it's not just crisis communications that your team has to look after. There's proactive activity too. Um, and I wanted to ask you about one particular campaign that you ran over uh, Valentine's Day earlier this year um, that got quite a lot of coverage. Um, tell us about Long Lost Loves. I think the police service has become really good at engaging with people on social media. We used Valentine's Day um, as a hook Uh, to help us support operational policing efforts and we used it to try and track down some wanted people. We sent those people some Valentine's messages um, online through Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and we asked the public to help us with tracking them down. The response we got was absolutely phenomenal. People absolutely loved the fact that we were using humour but at the same time we were trying to achieve a really serious objective. I think it's really important that the way the police use social media is appropriate in the sense that we can't just put appeals and requests for help on there without giving anything back. I think the public needs something back. They need to see the humanity that is in the police service, which I think is very much what we achieve through our social media. Um, We've also recently just had a festival that was supported by some of our operational policing colleagues over the weekend. And again, with that, the engagement that we got with people on social media, sending them some really useful information, but also having conversations with them, giving a bit of um, banter to and fro, I think it goes a long way towards supporting operational policing and really getting that link with the community. I think that's a a very good point about the whole humanity side of it. So that that brings it nicely back to my final question, given that we're here at at the Crisis Comms event. I just wanted to finish off by asking you for your top three practical tips for dealing with the crisis and let, let's take being you know the, the whole humanity issue as, as a given so what what other three uh, things would you suggest i think the first one is you need to be prepared and planned before it even happens you need to know what you're going to do and you need to have practiced i think the second one is you need to be quick with your initial response it's no good waiting eight hours until everybody's agreed a press statement get something out quickly through your social media channels show you're on it you're dealing with it you know what's going on and finally you cannot underestimate the importance of this but look after your people 
during a time of crisis, people who are your most hardworking people will work themselves into the ground unless you tell them to stop. They will do all those 24-hour days without question and say, I'm fine, I'll keep going. No, say to them, take a break, take a day off, recharge your batteries and come back fresh tomorrow. Excellent. Katie Perkin of uh, Sussex Police, thanks for joining the show. Um, We're back after this quick break to chat with Nick Foley of the National Trust. Consumers are 10 times more likely to buy goods or services if addressed in their own language. Conversus enables international businesses to communicate their message across different languages and cultures. For translation and localization of your PR comms and website content, multilingual desktop publishing and audio dubbing and subtitling of videos, visit conversus.com. Welcome back to this WPNT Communications-sponsored C-Suite podcast here at PR Week's Crisis Comms Conference with me, Russell Goldsmith, and my next guest is Nick Foley, who is the Head of Communications for the National Trust. Uh, thanks for breaking into your lunch break to, uh, to chat with me now, Nick. That's all right. Now, you presented a case study uh, just um, earlier about how the National Trust faced scrutiny after a devastating fire uh, tore through the 18th century mansion, uh, Clandon Park, uh, which was back in April 2015. But this was also a huge reputation challenge for you because let's face it one of your reasons for existing is to protect historical buildings just as that one isn't it yeah well exactly yeah the national trust looks after about 500 properties and places for the nation and we look after them forever so that is effectively the deal that's what we do that's what we exist to do yeah so the fire really struck at the heart of what we're there to do and what people expect us to do which is look after these places sure okay so let's talk about how you set about managing a crisis like that and, and ensuring that you're engaging with all the relevant stakeholders let's go back to the event itself yeah so um the fire broke out late in the afternoon quickly spread from the basement to the roof and by the evening it was pretty much ablaze all playing out really in front of um, satellite trucks and a huge crowd of of journalists and onlookers so one of the things we did at an early stage is we wanted to own the story. So we wanted people to come to our channels um, to get the latest uh, information and updates rather than relying on third parties because we knew even at that very early stage that we would need the support um, and backing of our supporters and members. We've got over four and a half million members. Uh, We needed to take them with us on this journey uh, from the outset. So we really focused on using the power and reach of our own channels to communicate directly with um, our key audiences. How big a team do you have in place to to manage that? Um, So we have a team of around 10 in our uh, headquarters but then we've got a uh, brilliant uh, regional team as well so there were about three regional communications officers that also helped but we also tapped into the expertise of the people on the ground Um, so the people leading the salvage operation the people who'd helped uh, rescue items from the fire they were all part of this story and all crucial really to the response and telling the story of how we responded and since that time you know in terms of dealing with the aftermath what's happened over the last couple of years since then well um it's been really important that um to take people on the journey with us so um After the excitement and drama of the fire, we didn't want to put the shutters down. We wanted to take people with us along the way. So we have continually updated people on progress during the whole restoration project. So the first phase really was the salvage operation, which took six or seven months. So it's a huge exercise in sifting through the rubble 
dozens and dozens of tons of rubble within the house sifting to see whether any of the artwork or collection could be saved and restored. And after that process came the fire report. That was another really big moment for us. This was the moment we would find out what was to blame or who was to blame for the fire. Ultimately, it found a manufacturing fault in the fuse board was to blame for it, although um, uh, the fire report did find areas where we could have done better. Uh, and we were very open about that, and we got on the front foot and told people about how we were addressing those concerns. Um, following the fire report, we announced our vision for the house, so what we were actually going to do at the house, how we were going to restore the ground floor, which had survived to some extent intact, but the upstairs, uh, the first and second floors had been completely destroyed in the fire. So we want to create a much more modern space up there uh, and to do something quite innovative and uh, fresh um, that the particularly will be used for, for as a community space. We did that in front of a, a packed media audience back in the Marble Hall in January 2016 um, because we felt actually nothing tells the story better than getting journalists back into the, into the Marble Hall uh, for the first time since the fire to see for themselves actually much more had survived than maybe anyone could possibly have hoped for when that when the fire first took hold yeah it's, it's obviously a, v- a very long process um to go through in your presentation today you, you talked about the four key lessons that that came out of the whole experience and, and so i just wondered if you could share those again for our listeners um because there were some interesting things there not just in terms of the lessons but also some of the plans you put in place at the time and how you you know managed to to you know drive the story yeah sure um, so one of the lessons was spotting the opportunities within the bad news. We couldn't um, control what had happened, but we could control how we responded um, to what had happened. And in amongst all that kind of doom and gloom, there were glimmers of hope. So firstly, no one was injured in the fire. They were all evacuated safely. Secondly, not all was lost in the fire. Far from it, around 400 items were saved from the collection. Um, and that was thanks to a really... Uh, well-rehearsed salvage operation which meant when fire officers arrived at the scene we could point them towards the rooms and the items which were most valuable that needed to be saved and there were also opportunities in terms of the public's response to what had happened so we were overwhelmed by thousands and thousands of messages of goodwill and support and sympathy Uh, we had offers of help in terms of uh, both money Uh, people wanted to come down and and help us with the clear-up operation and we had volunteers who actually came from around the world later in the process, from Australia, Canada, and Japan. And this was all unpaid. They were taking holiday to come over and help us. Um, and in a funny way, I suppose, it, it kind of uh, was true, that, 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 that maxim that you see the, the best of people in the worst of times. And I think we saw probably the best of the National Trust in the worst of times, in that people really rallied around us. People showed that, that they really cared about Clandon. They cared about the organization that and wanted to help. Um, so that was a really kind of key lesson for us and helped to kind of shape where we went next. Yeah. Secondly, it was really important for us to be true to our values. So I guess after the initial excitement of the fire, uh, we could have shut up shop, we could have put the shutters down. Uh, once the scaffolding went up, you know, there wasn't a huge amount to say in a way. But as a membership organisation, we felt we needed to be true uh, and honest with our with our members to tell them what was going on so that we got their understanding and engagement uh, and support for what we did next. So we were. We those, those were our guiding pros, uh, principles of being open, honest and transparent throughout this. 
What did that look like? Well, we did a number of different things. We um, stuck up a camera opposite the site early on so that people could get a live feed and see for themselves uh, what was happening. We were really honest about our safety record and some of the, um, the processes and procedures involved. And also to, to be honest with people about the scale uh, of devastation at the house and how long it was going to take. And we also knew that nothing beat actually going to the place itself and seeing what progress had been made. So we ran something of an experiment, really, by opening up the gardens to the house, only a few weeks, actually, after, after the fire itself, to see whether people would be interested in hearing more and seeing more about what actually happened on the site. And we had about 3,500 people turn up over a number of different weekends it was effectively sold out uh, and that was quite a light bulb moment for us it, you know it showed that people were interested in finding out more and getting behind the scenes um, yeah. of yeah. what was happening at the at the site one of the other things that y- you talked about in there was about owning the story i know we've touched on that mm. because of the fact that you got the, that social media following but y- you became the reporters didn't you yeah exactly so uh, we knew we wanted to own the story for, uh, from an early stage mm. We wanted to harness the power and reach of our own channels. We've got about one and a half million followers on our social channels alone. So we knew if we could get direct to our supporters and members uh, and update them and keep them informed of what was happening, that could go a long way uh, to getting that kind of buy-in and support for what we were doing. Of course, to drive people to your own channels, you need great content. So we set ourselves up effectively like a newsroom. Uh, we've got ex-journalists in the team. We sent them down to the site to um, talk to the kind of key players, talk to the experts. We've got an in-house photography team and video team, so we sent them down as well to capture those kind of key moments. And we also got our experts to write our first-person pieces about what they were doing, the salvage operation, um, what items had been saved, um, how they were caring for those th- items that have been saved. I mean, some of the artwork, for example, had been cut out quite crudely out of their frames. Um, so how do you start piecing some of these things together? And really that rich content and the fact we had control of the house, we had control of the salvaged items, we had control of um, the experts, meant we could drip feed that content, basically as exclusive content through our own channels and also to pass that on to, sure. to media as well, which ha- helped shape the story we wanted to tell. And what would you say is the sort of like final lesson that you've sort of learned from all this then? I think one of the things that the National Trust did really well throughout this was acting decisively rather than reacting to all the various kind of bumps along the road and all the challenges. So even at an early stage when we didn't really know the true extent of the damage uh, and what would come next, we committed to restore the house in some shape or form only, I think it was only two months after the fire. And that meant... We immediately killed off any speculation that the house would be knocked down. And that was this kind of growing theme uh, amongst some commentators and some supporters. We also held meetings with around 200 different organisations and groups um, over that two-year period. So we consulted very widely on plans to restore um, the house, what that would look like, whether that was historically um, accurate. And we did that, of course, because we wanted... Um, to hear from those groups but also it helped bring them in into the camp rather than on the outside and we filled the void throughout we told people what was going on we produced I think over 60 articles and features over that two-year period um, which kept people continually informed and engaged rather than 
waiting to be asked these questions we got out on the front foot and told people exactly what was going on it's a huge amount of work that you obviously it's gone in, into into mm. sort of like this whole area I was, I, I was just wondering if you can finish off just maybe going through how you've measured it in terms of the success of, of what you've you've achieved yeah so um i think against all the odds really particularly um given the devastation of the fire our media analysis of the coverage we received in that first year, um, 97% of it was either neutral or positive. So only 3% was actually negative. And two-thirds of that coverage found that we were a caring brand. So these sentiments came through very strongly. Um, our social engagement was very, very strong. Huge reach on our, um, on our social channels. So I think our Facebook posts reached over a million people. And our web articles reached nearly 150,000 unique users um, we raised 100,000 pounds through our Clandon appeal and those open days the garden open to, uh, days that were promoted through our own channels uh, were sold out so really successful I think at this stage as well it's not just about um, the statistics it was also about um, how we've really energized and engaged with our communities both locally but also in the wider heritage sector yeah. so that something that felt terrible when it happened has actually turned into something quite positive uh, and has really fueled people's imagination uh, and inspired them to, to kind of get involved and take part in this process now of looking at the rebirth of Clandon over the next few years. Brilliant. Well, that's a nice way to finish. So thanks for sharing that. I'll, let you, you get back, I'll let you get back to your lunch now. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now, um, shortly I'll be speaking with Fiona Jennings from uh, TUI UK and Ireland. But uh, yesterday I caught up with Neil Chapman from WPNT, our sponsors for this episode. Neil was a previous guest of the C-Suite podcast from show 20 uh, when we last discussed crisis comms on the series back in May last year. And so I started by asking him which organisations he thought had got their crisis comms right and who had got it badly wrong in those last 12 months since we uh, spoke. Well, I'm sure everyone has a list in there and uh, I'm going to be a bit of a coward. I, we don't, I don't like playing an armchair critic because uh, my sympathy and empathy is always with the responders and seeing those and understanding that um, without knowing from the inside what's happening, that, that the responders will be going through in a lot of pressure and a lot of challenges. And all we see from the outside are the headlines and the social media chatter, which generally are going to be critical. What I have sympathy for is, is for the responders in an organization and really looking at seeing how they're handling the crisis communications. Because in terms of training, it's not just about media. It's about communicating effectively with the, with the right stakeholders. Because for me, that's how you gain what I'd call a long-term success, which is never really reflected in the early headlines. Okay, fair enough, Neil. Um, now, you, you talk about communicating effectively there to a number of stakeholders, and of course, a, a key part of that is being prepared on how to respond, which of course is what you guys specialise in, um, you know, with the, regards to the training. Cl clearly, crisis comm scenario planning must have changed, though, quite dramatically over the last few years with the increasing uh, influence of social media. So what I was keen to understand is, is what someone going through a, a, a training programme could actually expect. Um, what we try and do is break things down to different skills, okay, because crisis communications and doing it effectively are different skills. It's not just interviewing well, it's stakeholder planning, it's organizational planning, such as press conferences or town halls. It's how do you manage the volume of calls you get in, and it's what, how do you structure statements that the company is producing. And these are very useful skills to, 
to, to have each for day-to-day operations, but they're the specific set of skills. So we like to break them down and coach people on them. The other aspect, as you say, is quite rightly social media. How do you recognize and see social media play out in a crisis? And that's always difficult because you can't do it uh, on the actual systems. We have our own proprietary system. It's a closed system. It's a secure one. And that's where we we allow the participants to take decisions which they then see reflected in the system, which replicates social media, sometimes their own social media uh, information they've sent out, the media, how the interaction between media and social media, but also other stakeholders. And we have experienced people on the other side who react to the decisions that are taken, uh, and they reflect to the participants how those decisions may play out in public. And the system's called STORM, and the, we, we, we uh, use that as almost like a window into the world for the people who we're training so that they, they just see the interaction between these three elements. Actually, out of interest, do, you, do the people taking part, do you ever have anyone that isn't a, 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 you know, a big user of, of social? Because not everyone's on Twitter, obviously, or, or not everyone's active on Twitter. Do, do, are they ever surprised at you know, where something could end up playing out, the, you know, the direction it might take? Yes, uh, usually with social media, if they don't have a great deal of experience of it, um, they don't really understand how fast it, 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 it reacts and moves. Um, and also the interaction between the stakeholders they may be trying to reach, customers, employees, um, investors, uh, the media, and also the mainstream media, how the three start to interact and, and you can almost see it. Okay, so if um, so, if you had one key message that you wanted to share about crisis communications training, what what would that be? One that any organisation should understand with different scenarios what good looks like. What's an effective response from their point of view? Yes, they can plan, they can uh, also prepare, but what does the an end result that they would be pleased? What does that look like so that the team can work towards that? And that as a team, often, it may well be just two people acting as a team, that in order to be effective, it's a set of skills that you need to practice. So as I say, it's not just plans, it's practicing those plans and practicing the skills you need. As an example, uh, how do you lead a team under stress when you're personally under stress? How do you brief them, run a meeting effectively where you can exchange information but also make decisions but you're doing that with a clock ticking seemingly very fast. They're skills that are useful every day, but for in a, in a crisis, they're, they're essential. Excellent. Uh, good to chat to you again, Neil. Thank you. That was Neil Chapman from WPNT Communications. Uh, but joining me now for my final interview from the PR Week Crisis uh, Communications Conference is Fiona Jennings, External Communications Director for TUI UK and Ireland. Now, Let's set the scene for the talk you've just uh, given, Fiona. 26th of June 2015, a terrorist opens fire on a beach in Port El Cantui in Tunisia, killing 38 people, 30 of which uh, were British citizens who were travelling with your company, Thompson. How do you even begin to manage that situation? Well, yeah, um, it's obviously a completely overwhelming situation to manage. Um, 
And I think one of the things that I've touched on is about planning and having a crisis plan in place, um, which is really important because everything's so overwhelming that actually if you have a plan that you've practised and scenario planned against, it will it will get you in some way, shape or form into the place you need to be to manage the crisis. Um, as, a, as a large travel company who take five and a half million people away, obviously we have a lot of um, very... Um, detailed plans we we scenario crisis exercise four times a year so we are you know fairly well prepared but I think by the nature of any crisis they're unpredictable so that you know you need to make sure that whatever you do is very flexible and agile. Talk us through the um, the process that you had to go through in those in those first few hours then. So in the first few hours it's really all about trying to understand and verify the facts that you can um, in these types of you know difficult crisis scenarios there's lots of misinformation so you need to make sure that what you're communicating is accurate you need to do it speedily as possible which again can be challenging and I think you know the rules for me around crisis communication is you know think about empathy you need to communicate with empathy especially in these types of situations a crisis is never about a business it's always about the people that it affects yeah, and make sure that you're really transparent with your communication you're not hiding anything that will come out later Um, and then lastly just be authentic you know be honest believable authentic communicate as and when you can and put the customer at the heart of everything you do because ultimately that is where you need to sit and that is what will get you out the other side of a crisis is to make sure the customer is really your focus and you're obviously having to work with a number of different um, organizations partners in in that situation aren't you yeah oh definitely in a crisis of um, of this magnitude especially overseas we were working with the foreign commonwealth office the red cross who is part of their rapid response team the met police the counter-terrorism police and the emergency services on the ground so you really need to work hard with them to make sure you're verifying the information that you're coordinating when it comes out and that you send it out with accuracy as well as with speed and then what about obviously you've got people that you need to bring back but then I, i guess there's thousands of people that are also booked to be going out to, to a destination like that. And especially for us at that time, it was the 26th of June, we were just um, starting our peak period where we would send about 3 million people away that summer. Around 70,000 70, of those would go to Tunisia. So as a business, we had to spend a huge amount of time looking at where we could reallocate flights where we could find hotel rooms because for us as a business we want to make sure that people can go on a holiday and people actually want to go on a holiday so out of 70,000 very few people cancelled most people um, would rebook somewhere else but it's a it's a colossal job to actually be able to manage that and I was really proud of the way we were able to do that as a business. Okay well I, I appreciate we can't really talk too much um, in, in detail about that particular incident as, as there is now going to be a civil case um, from some of the relatives of the British victims against Tui but one what I wanted to look at was the learnings you know if you can share um, from that experience both as a company but also as, as an individual. I mean, I think for, for me, from a company perspective, the key learnings are around customer first, putting the customer at the heart of everything you do. I feel like it's a critical piece. Over-communicate, especially in the first 48 hours. Tell the outside world, your customers, and the media, and also internally, your own people, as much as you can about the crisis and the incident and what's happening. Um, and I think with senior leaders, make sure your senior leaders are standing in the front and centre of a crisis like this. It's their responsibility to communicate externally they will want to in my case they really did they were very emotional about the scenario but they also need to tell the story that you have as a business and again in our case it was around what we were doing to help customers 
overseas and in the UK. We've already talked about external partners, but working with them in a coordinated way is very crucial to all of this. Working with the media and again, coordinating with the media, but gaining their help. Um, I told a story about the volume of calls we got two days after the crisis itself. We had over 30,000 people call into our contact centre who were, who were due to go on holiday and, and rightly so were very anxious, but we were just not prepared for that at all. And so we had to very quickly reprioritise the calls we'd take in date order. And we used the media to get the numbers and that information out. And that worked really, really really well for us so think about in that crisis scenario everybody that you can use and how do you get that information out quickly it's a, it's a very sensitive area and I'm not looking for a viewpoint on this specific case but ahead of the interview I was reading about the incident on the travel weekly website um, and someone had posted a comment saying things like and, and this so, so I'm just reading this off of what they've posted they've they've written what about Paris was the travel agent selling weekend breaks uh, in, in in Paris liable should the cafe owners have employed armed guards what about you know south of France lorry massacre in Nice you know should Nice have armed guards on the, on the promenade de, de Anglais? Um, and, and of course just in the last few weeks we've had our own sad and, and devastating incidents in, in Manchester and, and London and and so I'm just wondering whether you think more and more businesses and I'm not just talking here about travel obviously but you know will more businesses companies will they have to plan and train staff how to respond to terrorist incidents and the fact that I'm even asking this question sums up the sad and evil world you know world we're living in right at this moment but what's your thoughts on that? Um, I think sadly that is true and I think it will be the case you know we see these kind of new wave of awful terrorist attacks that are targeting people, families in their leisure time, causing unimaginable pain and devastation and damage. And it feels that that is the way that's moving forward. So I think if you're a brand or an organisation who targets that demographic, I think you really need to think about, you know, God forbid you were involved in anything like this, how might it affect you and your business and your brands and what would you do? And I think that a lot of businesses now are looking at terrorism specifically and training their teams specifically. You talk about... Um, tra- a lot of transport train companies are doing it, but I, I think sadly it will be the way forward. Yeah, a, a couple of crisis comes on on a couple of times in this podcast series where we've talked about incidents such as you know BP's uh, Deepwater Horizon and uh, the Alton Towers uh, Smiler Ride, um, which if anyone who is listening wants to go back and hear those interviews, they're, they're episodes twenty and nine respectively. Um, just taking into account all these high-profile cases, I wondered if we could just end this interview by me asking you for your three key bits of advice for anyone who has the responsibility of handling the comms of their organisation in in a time of crisis? Sure, I think that um, putting the customer at heart of everything you do is key. Communicating with honesty and transparency and as one voice is really key. And lastly, looking after yourselves and your teams and working together as a leadership team. These are incredibly stressful times. You'll make decisions that will be publicly scrutinised and you need to really work together and make sure you look after each other as well. Excellent. Uh, Fiona, I really appreciate you talking to me today. Um, As I know how sensitive an issue this is, and of course our hearts uh, go out to all the families and friends of of all those victims of all the incidents we've we've discussed today. That's actually it for another show, so I'd uh, like to thank all my guests, Katie Perkin, Nick Foley, and of course Fiona Jennings. Thanks also to the team at PR Week for helping to organise the interviews with their conference speakers today. And of course, thank you so much to WPNT Communications for uh, supporting and sponsoring this episode. WPNT can support your crisis comms training around the world helping you replicate the interplay between stakeholders, social media and the media and they do that in real time reacting to decisions uh, the participants take during a training drill. If you'd like uh, more information about
about how that all works, then please do visit their website at WPNT.com, uh, where you can find all their contact details. Don't forget, all previous shows are available to listen to at csweetpodcast.com, and you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn by searching for the uh, C-Suite Podcast. And please do give us a positive rating and review on iTunes if you can, because uh, that always helps us up the business charts. We also have a Facebook group and Twitter feed where you can continue the uh, discussion around this episode. And finally, to get involved in the series, you can contact me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith or get in touch via the contact form at csweetpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>